Well, hi friends, I'm Andrew, one of the pastors here at EV. I wanna add my welcome to Lachlan's. Uh, you know, today we're gonna to be thinking through a topic that we don't often talk about in church. One that is sometimes neglected by many churches and yet is so important for our understanding of the gospel message. It's the topic of death, judgment and hell. One of the greatest stumbling blocks to Christianity is the Bible's teaching on judgment, especially among those who are drawn to the idea of a loving, compassionate God. Jesus, who was full of compassion and gave his life because God so loved the world, spoke more about judgment than most other subjects. Now, before you tune out or click away, close your browser, I want to say that we need to hear the bad news in order to understand the good news. We need to know the severity of what the Bible holds out so as to see clearly the salvation that is on offer. So let's ask God to help us today as we come to his word and let it shape our understanding. Let's pray. God, we ask today that you would help us to understand your word and to know you more fully. Our God who is loving and just, who is faithful and compassionate, help us to focus on what you have to say. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever noticed how we all universally love justice? It doesn't matter if you're Mother Teresa or the Mafia, justice is incredibly important to everyone. Just the other day, I came across a, a desperate plight of justice in my own household. It was in the form of a three-year-old standing there, arms folded with a, a piercing glare, looking back at Christy and I. It's not fair, she cried, making a point, not only with her raised voice, but also stomping her foot as well. See, even at three years old, she has a keen sense of justice. It's built into all of us, isn't it? When someone wrongs us, we, we want to get justice. And so when someone cuts me off when I'm driving down the highway, it's justice I want. How dare they do that? But there is something right about justice, isn't there? A crime demands just punishment. Getting away with it just isn't right. But have you ever wondered, where does the inbuilt need for justice come from? We have it personally. It's, it's what our court systems are based on and kind of woven into the fabric of, of society. Why is that? Why does humanity pursue justice? Well, today I, I want to show you what Christians actually believe and what makes the most sense of what we all experience is the idea that justice comes from God, that justice comes from God. So over the past two weeks of this series, we've been looking at who is God and, and how we broke relationship with him, that he's the loving ruler of the world and, and how we removed God from his position of God and put ourselves in his position. We're all rebels against him, not just doing bad things, but making our own laws. We've tried to lead a mutiny against God. And our mutiny leads to our mortality, to our physical death. It's the single most certain thing in this life, that we all die. God punishes sinners firstly through mortality. See, death was the expected consequence of eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So in Genesis 3.19, God reminds Adam that he is dust and he will return to dust. God created life and in response to our sin, he takes life away. We've removed ourselves from everything that God gives. And this includes life itself. Humanity got what it asked for to, to be rulers of our own lives, cut off from the living God. And so death enters the world. 
Now the other week for Mother's Day, I got Christy some flowers. Uh, she really likes lilies, which is great because you can buy them when they're still closed and then over time they open up and they're, they're beautiful. Uh, but those flowers, from the moment they were cut, they ceased to be alive. They were dead. And sure, they went on to survive in some water for a period, uh, but they had no future. They'd been cut off from their life source. It's a little bit like this with our rebellion of our first parents. They were sent from the garden, cut off from God and, and destined to die. The impact of their actions affects the whole human race. We've all been born outside the garden, born with the corrupt nature of our first parents. And you see, it's the Bible's claim that all of us enter this world as sinners. We are conceived in sin. I'll take a look at Romans 5, verse 12. Romans 5, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. Adam was only one man and, and he did one act, <laughs> disobeying God and allowing his family to eat of the forbidden fruit. And the result of this act spreads to all people. We know this to be true, don't we? We're all guilty, that's clear. <laughs> Just try going one day without rejecting God. The problem is we deserve justice. Now we love justice when it's in our favor, but if God is to be just, everyone who commits mutiny against him should be brought to justice. And that means death, judgment, and hell. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. Payday is coming. And this is what we deserve. Imagine a God without justice. If God is a God of love without the accountability of justice, then vulnerable people become more vulnerable. Bullies are encouraged to continue bullying. Now, the reality of divine judgment is found on page after page of Bible history. And for love to be truly loving, there must be judgment. If there is no judgment, then there is no hope. There is no hope for a rape victim. There is no hope for a child who's been abused, for someone who's been slandered or robbed or, or even had their dignity stolen. But as if that were not already not enough, physical death is not the full or final consequence of our rebellion. So Hebrews 9.27 says, Just as it is appointed for people to die once, and after this face judgment. After death comes judgment. Death is not your end, and it's not my end. All people will be judged. We'll carry on in Romans 5 verse 16 says, From one sin came the judgment, resulting in condemnation. Because we're all guilty in our sin. And there's no question about that. But because we're guilty, God will judge us accordingly. Now, throughout history, we have seen God's judgment play out. Uh, after the Garden of Eden, God judged the corrupt world in Noah's day. He's sending a flood to destroy humanity. Uh, God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, engulfing them in a volcanic catastrophe. And God judges through natural disasters like that. But God judged Israel for unfaithfulness to him after they entered into Canaan, causing them to fall under the dominion of other nations throughout the book of Judges. Even once they entered the promised land, Israel was warned that their disobedience would result in deportation. And after repeated warnings in the northern, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom were destroyed. God judges through human agents sometimes too. 
Now, some people say, yeah, that's the God of the Old Testament. He's the God of wrath. But the, the God of the New Testament, well, he's the God of love. But, you know, even in the New Testament, we see evidence of God's judgment resulting in death. So Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead for lying to God in Acts 5. King Herod was struck down uh, by an angel of the Lord for not giving God glory. He was eaten by worms and, and died. Even some of the Christians at Corinth suffered illness because of their disrespect of the Lord's Supper. And for some, it proved fatal. And God's judgments occur through natural disaster, through, through human agents, uh, but they also occur through his withdrawal. So part of the way we see God's judgment today is that he gives people over to the sinful desires of their hearts. And so they receive the appropriate penalty for their actions. Look with me at Romans 1.28. says this, Because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. The sovereign, loving ruler of the world is just and always executes his rightful judgment. And yet as bad as all these things may be, they will pale in significance to what is to come. See, the New Testament is overshadowed by the certainty of a coming day of universal judgment with the divinely appointed judge, a judge with authority, one who loves righteousness and, and hates inequity. A judge who is wholly identified with what is good and right. One who is wise and able to discern truth. One with the power to both pronounce and execute correct sentence. This final judgment is always represented in terms of retribution. God will judge all people according to their works. And God does not show favoritism. God is just and all wrongs will be righted in that last day. People will get what they deserve and his retribution will be exact. Now, that's great for us because it means that the burden of carrying out judgment and, and making this world just does not ultimately fall to us. It falls to Jesus. I don't have to be an avenger. How many times have you been wronged? And I mean more than just getting cut off uh, on the highway. How many times have you been wronged and you want to enact justice? But be assured, a better justice, a justice that can't get it wrong will be enacted. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord in Romans 12. And yet God is slow to judge, isn't he? He is merciful and doesn't desire the death of a sinner. And so the biblical picture is that judgment is pending. The judgment day of the Lord is still to come. But it will come suddenly and unexpectedly like a thief in the night. See, the secular worldview says there is no future, no purpose, that this life is all there is. But the Christian view of judgment means that history moves towards a climactic goal. It is unthinkable that the present conflict between good and evil should last throughout all eternity. No, no, judgment means that evil will be disposed of authoritatively, decisively, and finally. Judgment means that in the end, God's will will be perfectly done. And, and so Christians look forward to that day when justice will dawn, uh, when the eternal future will begin. Now, most people have heard of heaven and hell. Jesus warned against the prospect of hell as much as he describes the privileges of, of heaven and the life eternal. 
Matthew 5, 29 to 30, we read these words of Jesus. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. The views on heaven and hell are often misrepresented as immaterial, as theoretical destinations. And even more common is the view that if such a place does exist, most people go to the good place, the better place, right? And so because people think it's just a fairy tale, we we make jokes about heaven and hell about not having to do anything in heaven. We're just sitting around playing harps on clouds or about going to hell being a whole lot of fun with my mates. But friends, the Bible speaks of these two places in very real and literal terms. Heaven and hell appear together in the New Testament, affirmed side by side. Matthew 25, 46 is a great example of this, where he uses the phrases eternal punishment and eternal life as deliberate parallels. The duration is the same for both groups. But contrary to popular belief, hell is not a place where God sends those who have been especially bad. No, no, hell is our default destination due to our depravity. We need a rescuer or else we stand condemned, destined for hell. And hell is a horrible reality. It's a place for mutineers in rebellion against God. And so if we want to know what hell is actually like, we need to let God tell us. Jesus is the first person to use the word hell in the Bible. Jesus talks about it as a reality and he he doesn't seem to have any doubts about it. The New Testament paints the picture of hell as utter darkness, as condemnation, suffering the wrath of God, everlasting destruction away from the presence of the Lord, perishing, separation, destruction of body and soul, weeping and gnashing of teeth, blackest darkness and eternal fire. Now, most scholars agree that these pictures of hell are symbolic rather than literal. For it's hard to see how darkness could simultaneously have a literal fire present. But that doesn't mean it won't be as bad. The symbolic pictures point to a reality much worse than their pictures themselves. It's hard to think of a doctrine more painful to consider, more frightening to contemplate, or more bizarre to imagine than the classical conception of hell. It's an appalling truth, and yet it's meant to appall us and strike us dumb with horror. Not because the punishment seems greater than the crime, but to horrify us at how great our crime is. You see, all of us, have some form of relationship with God. And all of us will have an eternal relationship with Him. Because hell is not the absence of God, it's a negative relationship to God. An experience not of His absence, but of His presence in wrath and punishment. This sounds strange to us, doesn't it? It sounds strange to those of us who are familiar with the destination of hell as separation from God. But look, whatever the exact nature of this everlasting judgment, it is horrible, ultimately for one reason, that God is present. See, hell is not ultimately about fire, friends. It's about God. And the real terror awaiting the unrepentant is God himself. 
in his inescapable presence forever with his face turned against them. The wrath of God. And remember, this is what I deserve. This is what you deserve. It's the mortality that comes from our mutiny. Now, if you're anything like me or my daughter, Ellie, we want to cry out, that's not fair. (laughs) And there are a whole heap of scenarios that come into our heads about the seemingly injustice of such a punishment as hell. For example, what about those who have never heard of the Christian God? And that's a fair question. There are still some 500 unreached people groups in the world today. People who need the Bible in their own language to be able to understand more of who God is and what he is doing in the world. And yet Romans 1 tells us that God has clearly shown humanity that he exists. Romans 1.20 says, For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. So both at the macro and the micro levels of God's handiwork, uh, it's on display for us. We look to the stars that are so, so far away and we look to the intricacies and and complexities of our human bodies and we're to marvel at the God who made heaven and earth. And so the Bible says they are without excuse. Now, there are a few common objections to hell that I want to quickly outline. You see, some have said that the existence of hell doesn't fit with the God who claims to be all loving. That eternal suffering doesn't fit with the character of God and therefore his grace will eventually extend to all people everywhere. And while that sounds nice, it actually ends up painting God as unjust. You see, the punishment must be paid. Now God has provided a way to remain just and also forgive. He's provided a way to be both the just and the justifier, but you have to come back next week to hear about that. But if a universalist understanding were true, then there wouldn't need to be any reason to repent and believe, would there? It would be automatic, and that's just not the teaching of Jesus. Now, God's love and justice are not pieces of the same pie, 50% loving and 50% just. God is all loving and simultaneously completely just. There are other objections to the concept of hell, and most of these are to do with the duration of the punishment. Views that say we cease to exist, that that hell is just fleeting. Uh, Again, it's just not the plain teaching of Scripture. C.S. Lewis wrestles with this when he says, There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than hell. But it has the full support of Scripture and especially of Jesus' own words. It has always been held in Christendom. Another objection I hear is that this just feels like scare tactics, (laughs) as if hell isn't real and God won't judge us. But it's not like that. If it is real, we must listen. When it comes to God's diagnosis on us, it's not unlike being diagnosed with cancer. Just because the outlook is bad doesn't mean that it's not true. In fact, it would be completely naive to say, oh, that's, that's too horrific. It can't be true and ignore the diagnosis or to even try some other solution. Steve Jobs uh, died of cancer, but for the first nine months, he tried alternative ways to heal his cancer, when all he really needed to do was to cut it out. Friends, God's diagnosis on us is that we have all rejected him. We all deserve justice. 
death, judgment, and hell. That's how big of a dilemma we're all in. But today, let me ask you this. How will you respond to this warning? The Bible's plain teaching is that those who do not have faith in Christ will suffer God's wrath in hell for all eternity. All of us will receive what we choose, either to be with God forever, worshiping Him, or forever opposed to Him. And friends, that's a scary thought. Uh, It's scary to be reminded of our sin. But recognize that it's the loving, it is loving and gracious of God to point this out to us. We've all been warned. And so every minute we have is a gift. It's an opportunity to, to see how good and generous and loving God is. And every moment of suffering serves as a signpost to remind us of what we truly deserve and of our desperate need to come to Jesus and repent. There is a solution to our sin problem. One who was not conceived in sin, who, though made in the very likeness of man, knew no sin. He was born and lived and died and and rose again. This one who took upon himself the sins of the world, our Savior, Jesus Christ. So come back next week as we introduce you to God's incredibly costly solution to my sin and yours. His name's Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are both loving and just, that in your justice, you will not let the guilty go unpunished. As you've reminded us today of what we rightly deserve, we're sorry for sinning against you, for living life our own way. We plead the righteousness uh, that comes through Christ. We ask that you would let our punishment fall on him. And we thank you for your mercy towards us, for rescuing us from the fate of hell. But we ask that you would help us not to deceive ourselves into thinking we're somehow good. But may we rest solely in Christ alone. It's in his beautiful name that we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.